Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Mari Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. And this is our final episode of the year. Today, we are looking back at the main cultural themes of 2019 and how the year's biggest works fit into them. So that's books, movies, TV, art, music, and memes. Yeah, and this episode is going to take in pretty much everything from eco-anxiety to Stormzy's Glastonbury performance to why experimental fiction is having a moment. We also have some excellent listener recommendations to share with you, and we brought a few of our esteemed editors here at the FT into the studio to tell us their favorite cultural trends and picks of 2019. After this episode, we're going to be taking a break to work on the second series of Culture Call, which will be with you in the second half of January. And we'd love to know who you'd like us to interview and what you'd like us to tackle in the next season. Yes, you can, as always, email us at culturecall at ft.com or find us on Twitter at ftculturecall. Grizz, at this point in the show, we usually share what we've been up to since we last got on the line. And I know you've been busy writing A Lunch at the FT, which is one of my favorite Financial Times institutions. Yeah, it's a big interview piece that runs in the weekend paper in the Life and Arts section um, and online, obviously, every weekend and different FT writers and editors do the interview every week. I had lunch with Nicola Benedetti, who is a kind of superstar violinist. She was a child prodigy and led the National Youth Orchestra when she was eight, I think. Wow. Um, Yeah. By the time she was 16, she won BBC Young Musician of the Year, which is kind of like the biggest young uh, musician prize you you can win here. Growing up in Edinburgh, like Nicola Benedetti was a huge figure there. Wow. She's kind of very glamorous Italian Scott. Um, my sister was in the same orchestra as her and this was like, you know, <laughs> stardust. Um, so it was quite exciting to meet her. We had a really interesting conversation about what her life is like, basically, what it's like to be a musician, a soloist, traveling around the world and not really being rooted in any one place. As a kid. Particularly as a kid, you know, she's now 32. She's the same age as me, but she spent more than half her life doing this. It's, you know, it's very itinerant. It's quite lonely. It's incredibly demanding. It's kind Mm. of, she's got like an iron discipline about her. So it was just fascinating, not only to hear her talking about music, but to hear her talking about like the life of a musician and what it's like on the inside. Grizz, it's a really great piece. Congratulations. And everyone should read it. You can find the link in our show notes and on our Twitter at FT Culture Call. When we were talking about how to approach this end-of-the-year roundup episode, we realized that a lot of the best films and books and exhibitions and TV shows that we were sort of pitching to each other as things that we loved were grappling with pretty similar themes. Yeah, so instead of just listing our favorites, we decided to break things down by theme. And that way we can also look at how all these different mediums are dealing with the same issues. So the four sort of areas that we settled on that we realized were coming up again and again are the climate crisis, technology and the generational divide, feminism and race. And it's funny, they all intersect in different ways with what the psychologist Esther Perel calls the identity economy. Um, Esther Perel, who we interviewed a few episodes and like to bring up on every (laughs) subsequent episode, um, she described the identity economy as an economy in which we are increasingly asking ourselves, who am I? Which is not a question that our grandparents asked as often because the answer to it for them was kind of obvious, right? It was defined by their communities and their culture and their religion. 
Um, and today, that's totally broken open. We have more choice. We get to choose who we marry. Mm. If we marry, what we choose is our career, where we live, who we love. All that stuff is different. But we see its side effects kind of reverberating. You know, we're known as the anxiety generation, the, the millennials and, and Gen Z. And we live in a world in which every choice we make, every brand we give money to, everything we eat, every photo we share, every photo we don't share, <laughs> says something about who we are and what we believe and who we support and what camp we're in. Yeah, there's a lot to explore. So we're <laughs> going to get into it. So first up is climate. For me, this definitely feels like the theme of the year. I mean, in the space of 12 months, we've gone from talking about climate change and global warming, which sounds kind of like cozy and benign, to <laughs> climate crisis and climate emergency. The Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was climate emergency and the Collins wow. Dictionary was climate strike. So this says something about sort of where we're at at the moment. Um, and I think this is the year the debate stopped being so much about is climate change real? and more about what can we do. You know, it was the mm -hmm. year of climate activism, of Greta Thunberg's school strike, of Extinction Rebellion. Something has palpably shifted. Yeah, it feels like the collective agreement that climate change is an emergency, it cuts through every part of culture now that almost everything we consume touches it. Yeah, and this idea of consumption, I think, is so important. Um, so I think we should start with thinking about food. Literal consumption. Yes, literal <laughs> consumption. We've seen the rise the continued rise of alternative foods and veganism, in particular kind of meat substitutes. I feel like they've got a real facelift this year. Yeah, you know, the meat alternatives market grew by 22%. Hmm. Um, the Impossible Burger is everywhere, even in the church of burgers, Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had an Impossible Burger. What does it taste like? Okay, so it isn't one-to-one, -one, but it's close. And I have this theory that all of these things are good if the surroundings are the same. Um, but on their own, they're still a little bit weird. But it's really getting closer. You know, I tried this like very trendy alternate cheese called Miyoko that's made from cultured potato and <laughs> legumes. <laughs> and honestly, it's weird, but it's good on a cracker. And, you know, the Impossible Burger is good with some ketchup and some mustard and some pickles and, and a bun. Yeah, it's funny. I've been vegetarian for a few years now, and I've really noticed these kind of things getting better and better. They used to be kind of grim. Um, mm. Vegan mayo is surprisingly tasty. I don't know if you've tried it recently. No, it's really good. I'll put it on the list. <laughs> it's funny, though, because it feels like it's both an identity project and not, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm vegetarian, I'm gluten free, I'm vegan. These are these have been identity markers for a really long time. But it seems like it's rising and the reasons are different now. Like one of the most successful anti-meat arguments is the environmental one. Because mm. experts like universally agree and it's very openly publicized that reducing the amount of meat you eat is the best way to reduce environmental harm. Yeah. And in a way, I think maybe, I mean, I'm speaking personally, but I think maybe it's easier to do that yeah. than to like never shop for new things or never fly. Right. You know, if actually these meat, these non-meat meats taste quite good now, or if now lots of restaurants have lots of like delicious vegan options, maybe it's, it's a consumer choice that feels attainable. It's, it's like a way to join a movement without as much work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a cynical way of putting it. <laughs> Sorry, it's a light touch. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because I think we're assessing, you know, not only what we eat, but like we were saying, what we buy, where we go on holiday, how we get there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, 2019 was the year of flight shame. Um, the idea that like there's now shame attached to flying, particularly like short haul flights, I think. Flights where yeah. you could get the train. And also what we wear. I think fashion is a big one. 
Yeah, there's been a backlash against fast fashion. Yes, it was the year of the one pound bikini from Misguided. That was very misguided, actually, because they really had a lot of bad publicity after that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And a lot of like Forever 21 stores in the U.S. are closing. Uh, There's also sort of the the, the rise of peer-to-peer selling like Depop and fashion rental. Like in uh, the U.S., it's Rent the Runway which has sort of had a resurgence. Yeah, and actually there's like peer-to-peer fashion rental here, so I could like rent your dress. Um, There's a website called Her Collective. It's interesting, and I think all of these things are cropping up, not just because of we're more eco-conscious, but that's definitely one of the reasons. Yeah, and then on a higher level, you and I have been talking a lot about how Stockholm Fashion Week was canceled in July Mm. with like less than two months' notice. The CEO of the Swedish Fashion Council said, you know, we can't keep doing business as usual. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting one because digging a bit deeper into it, it wasn't that sustainability was actually the only reason or maybe even the main reason for the cancellation. Like they had these financial troubles, apparently. Uh Um, But I think it's telling that it's the reason that they gave because they know that this stuff matters to consumers. Um, You know, in the same way that cultural institutions have come under fire all across the West, really, for things like oil sponsorship, because visitors who go to museums care about this stuff now. You know, there's been a whole swathe of different museums ending their association with BP and other oil companies. The Royal Shakespeare Company is one that springs to mind. Yeah, I find that in a lot of different places, uh, there's the question of sort of washing, right? Like, is a company greenwashing by Mm. just suggesting it's it's environmental when it's really not? Is it sort of like mental health washing when it's suggesting that it cares about uh, about wellness when it doesn't? Yeah, and I think on a personal level, people do that as well. Like there was this campaign, hashtag secondhand September, that was launched by Oxfam. And that's great, but it was a lot of like virtue signaling on Instagram. Like, you know, here's my mum's vintage blouse, hashtag secondhand September. <laughs> well, are you actually buying less or, you know, I yeah. think it's easy to be quite cynical about it. But the good way of thinking about it is, is that we're starting to force people to put their money where their mouth is when it comes to these things. Mm. It's not acceptable to just pretend we're supportive anymore. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is this term eco-anxiety that's being yes. kind of bandied around. What does that mean exactly, do you think? Um, the best way that I can describe it is with a scene from Big Little Lies. <laughs> By uh, on HBO, in which the teacher asks his students, second graders, how many gallons of water it takes to make a single pound of sausage. And the second graders go, a thousand. And the teacher says, and how many showers does that add up to? And the students go, 50. And then there's a thud. <laughs> and Laura Dern's kid has like completely passed out from an anxiety attack. And uh, I can feel that way sometimes too. Mm. Basically, psychologists say that anxiety around uh, the impending end of the world <laughs> or the destruction of the environment, it, which is what kind of eco-anxiety means, mm. is a very normal response um, and may actually be a good thing. Yeah, it's quite healthy to be worried about the end of the world, right? Yeah, I think Greta Thunberg put it right when she said, adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope, but I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. <laughs> She's got such a good way of putting things You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil and that I refuse to believe. 
have you read this like it's like a small book a pamphlet that she's that she published this year called no one is too small to make a difference mm, not yet it's but it's great actually it's basically a collection of her speeches it's incredibly short her writing is just like that it's so simple so direct and yeah. reading that has made more of an impact on my thinking than pretty much any other kind of culture that I've consumed that's to do with environmental issues amazing I went to this exhibition um, a couple of days ago called Eco Visionaries at the Royal Academy in London. And it was billed as a show presenting ideas about how we might deal with impending environmental catastrophe, how we should adapt, not just kind of what we've done wrong, but sort of what the future is. And there's artists like Olafur Eliasson and Virgil Abloh. But it's funny, it kind of left me cold. Really? It sounds good. What what was wrong with it? It does sound good. And yet somehow it wasn't. Um, (laughs) These were like quite beautiful works, lots of quite delicate work. And somehow they didn't really make me think. I mean, there's an amazing one where it's like you're in a mini cinema looking at jellyfish, like live jellyfish and looking at kind of how beautiful they are, but also learning about how jellyfish are basically destroying the seas um, because we've overfished so much. And it's like, well, it's interesting, but I didn't leave feeling a real sense of urgency in the way that when I finished reading Greta Thunberg's book, I did. And it really mm. makes me think, actually, the challenge of art is like how to respond to something like the climate crisis, how to, how to get people to shift their thinking. And that's happening. That mm. has happened this year. And I don't know if it's actually to do with art, you know? What do you think does it? Well, I think activism. I think it's Greta Thunberg. And I think it's seeing Extinction Rebellion in London kind of close down the centre of London this year. I think, for me, that was so much more compelling than any, anything I've seen on the wall of a gallery so far. Yeah, I think along those lines, some of the most compelling reactions from artists have been the practical ones. And that does come from messaging through pop culture, like Billie Eilish got her fans free tickets in exchange for climate mm. action and Coldplay stopped touring. They said they wouldn't tour again until it's carbon neutral or even beneficial. And so we'll see how the art changes in 2020. But for now, it seems like the activism is is the place. So the second theme is the changing face of technology and how it has grown the generational divide. And this one I think is like very seminal to 2019, especially because we're reaching the end of a decade too, not just the end of a year, right? Like if we take a moment to think about where we were 10 years ago, Hmm. like on social media and on the internet, Facebook was growing. MySpace was lagging. In 2010, Pinterest and Instagram had just launched. In 2011, Snapchat launched. In 2012, Tinder launched. And now these are these startups are massive conglomerates, right? Mm. Facebook owns WhatsApp and Instagram. Um, and one of our words of 2018 at the end of last year was tech lash, kind of like how are people going to react against the fact that these Silicon Valley, like, who, me, little startups are now like... <laughs> world dominators. Mm. Yeah, so it's interesting. So what you're saying is like in this 10 years, we've gone from thinking these are like fun, good guys to the backlash or the tech clash of actually these people are, you know, selling our data and ruining our attention spans. And this is all quite murky and not as great as we thought. Yeah. It reminds me of that book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. Yeah, which is one of the biggest books of, of this year which says something about kind of where we are in terms of our relationship with technology. Um, The other thing I've I've been thinking about on this 
is the recent rise of TikTok. TikTok is a like a video sharing social networking service. It has like very short mobile videos. If you were ever on Vine, it's pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and its appeal, according to my young sources, <laughs> is that it's like kind of a glimpse of what the Internet used to be. Like it's just random. Mm-hmm. It's silly. It's not really commoditized yet. It's just people jumping into a swimming pool or, you know, doing a dance to Old Town Road or <laughs> um, it's sort of the America's Funniest Home Videos mm. of <laughs> Gen Z's uh, life. Um, when I was a kid, we were like on AOL looking for weird places like chat rooms to be random and funny and explore. Um I think there's sort of a nostalgia for the open internet. So Facebook gets ruined by targeted ads and your grandparents going on it. And then Instagram (laughs) gets ruined again. um, By influencers. Yeah. And now we have TikTok. And for the sort of foreseeable future, um, there will be a little bit of time before that gets ruined too, where teens can go and be weird. Yeah. And like teenagers will always be weird, right? They'll always Mm -hmm. want to have that outlet. And so there will be another TikTok if and when TikTok becomes sucked into the corporate machine even more than it is. So what do you think all of this says about the sort of widening generational divide? You know, it's interesting because I think across generations, there's a shared lack of trust in institutions and big corporations and the government, but it's coming out in really different ways depending on the generation. Mm. So I find that young people who grew up with the internet are less scared of the actual internet, but more scared of the system. In the TV show Euphoria and HBO, Mm. which was huge this year, teenagers knew that nude selfies could get disseminated and they knew they were being tracked across the Internet and being marketed to. But that wasn't necessarily going to change their behavior. Um, But meanwhile, in real life, not in the show, Jeffrey Epstein hangs himself and the meme Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself runs rampant. It sort of is this meme about staying awake and watching the government. So an example of that meme would be like, how to make cookies, eggs, butter, chocolate chips, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself, vanilla. It's sort of like, (laughs) stay awake. The sense being that Jeffrey Epstein did not kill himself in his jail cell, but actually was sort of killed by the government or helped to die because he was holding so many secrets, which who knows? Mm. A young person is more likely to want to burn it all down and rebuild. So so that's the younger generation. When we look at the older generations, would you say that they're kind of more scared of the internet, but less willing to believe in the possibility of institutional and structural change? So the kind of things that young people want to rip down and start again? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they seem more worried about the cameras on their computers <laughs> and covering those, but more mm. cautious, right? Less likely to want to totally overhaul healthcare or think that that's possible, especially in America. Mm. But, you know, it makes sense, right? Teens are living in an existential crisis. Nothing matters. Like, the world is coming to an end anyway. And that's not really a narrative that I grew up with. No, it's, I think it's completely different now being a teenager. And you mentioned euphoria. Yeah, euphoria, I think, really encapsulates all of the generational divide themes in the same series, you know? Phones were a part of it, but it wasn't about phones. It was about trust. And gender identity is a part of it. There's a trans character Um, who's my favorite character on the show, but it isn't just about her being trans. Uh, She's a a complex figure and her friendships um, and psychology are about more than that. It took so much that most TV shows take on as sort of capital I issues and just drop them in as part of life. And honestly, 
that's why I think Euphoria has actually been one of the most interesting TV shows this year. It touches on so much of this stuff all in one place. Our third theme, then, is feminism and Me Too. We're two years on from the Harvey Weinstein revelations, and it feels like this year, 2019, has been one in which the cultural response and the kind of fallout from Me Too and everything that that means has really come to the fore. It's been a really big year for culture that's responding to these kind of themes. Of course, Jeffrey Epstein has reminded us that there's still far to go. This is probably still the start of a movement. Um, But it's like a coming of age at the same time, I think. Yeah, Rebecca Traster came out with a New York Magazine piece um, about how all the attention has been on what happens to a man after he's accused, but actually what happens to the woman? You know, what has the fallout been for these women? And on a personal level, was it worth it for them? Mm. I will say for the culture, we're grateful for them. One of the books I was reading this year is She Said, which is the account of breaking the Weinstein story back in 2017 and kind of before that, written by these two New York Times reporters, Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey. Um, And they were the ones that did all the reporting. Mm. And it really made me realize how much has changed in two years because a lot of the struggle that they had in doing their reporting is basically getting all of these women to go on the record Um, They all had these incredibly similar stories about exactly what Weinstein did to them. So the book was kind of taking you behind the scenes on what it was like to report the story? Yeah, it's a really fascinating, like, deep dive into what it was actually like and how sort of delicate it was to break the story. I didn't read it instantly when it came out because I thought, well, you know, I read everything at the time. I've been reading everything since. Is there that much more to know about this? But actually, it's such a page turner, surprisingly so, really Mm. compelling because you go behind the scenes, like you say, and you realize exactly how fragile that was and how everything was kind of held in the balance, even up until the day it was published. And there's been such a big change since then on the art that's being produced. Like, it's been really interesting to see in film and TV that we're listening to women's stories differently, don't you think? Like, Mm. what's being commissioned feels different. It's been a year for incredible storytelling where women are taking control over how they're seen way more than before. Yeah, definitely. There are more female writers and directors and showrunners. It's like on Fleabag and Hustlers and Russian Doll. Yeah, so Fleabag, I'm glad you mentioned Fleabag because I feel like we can't do a cultural roundup of the year without mentioning season two of Fleabag. Yeah, no way. It's such a big moment on both sides of the Atlantic, season two of Fleabag. And so Fleabag is a woman... I guess she's in her late 20s, early 30s, living in London. She's having a kind of a a sort of meltdown brought on by the death of her friend and the death of her mother. She's going through a lot of stuff, but she's not dealing with it. She's very defensive, very prickly. She lets you in by turning straight to the viewer and looking at you kind of dead on. And then she keeps you out. You don't know how much she's trying to do. Is she intentionally self-sabotaging or is she just doing it because she's out of control? Right. It, It was one of those... TV shows, a bit like Succession, where series two is better than series one. Mm. And that's so hard to pull off, I think. Yeah. Maybe it was partially down to the hot priest. (laughs) Yeah. The hot priest was a total sensation. But I think ultimately, I mean, it's about Fleabag herself, isn't it? It's so complex and so dark and so subtle. It felt like it was doing something that was really new. And also there was really an appetite for it. Yeah, it's nothing like the Elena Ferrante books, but there is something like that overlaps about the the nuance of what goes on inside a woman's brain. <laughs> well, they're both about the kind of darkness and the complexity that lurks in relationships between women. Yeah. 
I feel like what the Elena Ferrante books did was put female friendship right up there um, and kind mm. of shine a light on it. And actually, I have a theory about Fleabag that the real love story is between Fleabag and her sister, Claire. It's not between Fleabag and, and the hot priest, which is the romantic storyline. Tell the truth. It's horrendous. It's horrendous. It's modern. Don't lie. I'm not. I look like a pencil. You, you don't look don't like a... It's okay. It's not okay. I'm going to lose my job. Don't lose your job. It's cool. It's not cool. It's edgy. Oh, oh it's she. It's unsalvageable. Claire, it's French. This is really a TV show. I mean, it's about grief, but it's about sisters. It's about how you go through something difficult with your sister. So we've gone from female friendships to sisterhoods. Yeah, I think so. And I think you see sisters in other culture that we've had this year. I mean, think about The Crown. You were talking yeah. about the relationship between the Queen and Princess Margaret. Um, Greta Gerwig's doing a new version of Little Women that's coming out quite soon. That's true. Um, there's Frozen, obviously. Yeah, Hustlers a little bit too, even though they're not blood sisters. Yeah, and it's it's like the most complicated female friendship there is in some ways, isn't it? The closest one. Right. Another interesting show that kind of brings you into the head of one unique woman <laughs> is Russian Doll, which was created by Natasha Leone and Leslie Headland and Amy Poehler. Mm. And uh, it's it's such a good show. The plot of it, it's on Netflix, and the, the plot of it is basically that Natasha Leone's character sort of dies randomly and almost comically in the first episode and then... It's sort of a Groundhog Day situation where she keeps being reborn and having to go through the same party in the same days over and over again over the course of the show. Are you going to tell me what's going on? I keep dying and reliving the same night. Does it hurt? Yes. You seem fine. I'm not fine. I'm questioning my own sanity. It's just such an interesting show. Like, I feel like men uh, have been in sort of leadership roles in film for so long that they have the luxury of being able to do weird stuff and do whatever they want. And and this is hmm. sort of that. But like, it's like a woman-led show. And it's not about a woman being a woman and her problems of womanhood. It's it's about addiction and time. And, and it's structured in a way that I've never seen on TV before. And it's weird. Yeah. And I feel like no one else could have made it. It felt so personal to her. Yeah. And it's funny, I was thinking, when was the last time that I saw Natasha Leone? I know that she was in Orange is the New Black. But for me, the last time that I saw her was in the American Pie films when I was <laughs> at school. And this could not feel more different. Um, Seriously. And it made me think about what the kind of classic American high school movie looks like now. This year, we've had Booksmart and Eighth Grade, which are very different films. Um, eighth Grade's much kind of more lo-fi, low-key, um, sort of sadder film about what it's like to be, I guess, how old is it, 13, 14? Yeah, 13, like in the clutches of, of your awkward adolescence. Yeah, and trying to be popular online. Yeah. And I feel like both those films were sort of looking at the world through the eyes of teenage girls, not looking at them like we do in American Pie. It's completely different. For sure. Yeah, it's really evolved. I also find that the pop icons of 2019 are not what they used to be. When I was 13, mm. they're not all skinny and white. They're not Britney Spears with a snake around her sort of bikini body. Um, <laughs> they're not playing to the male gaze the same way. They're about self-care, being true to you. They're all different body types. I mean, I think 2019 is the year of Lizzo. Yes, definitely. 
So Lizzo shot to fame with a YouTube video of her playing the flute and twerking. <laughs> um, she's like a sort of classically trained flautist. Um, but she's also uh, been in the game for many years and just now is getting like a huge amount of coverage. Her major song is Truth Hurts. I just took a DNA test, turns out I'm 100% deaf. Even when I'm crying crazy, yeah, I got boy problems as a human in me. Bling, bling, and she's like... She's black and she's big and she's an amazing singer and she's sexual, but not for other people, for herself, you know. And you saw her, right? You saw her live. I did. I saw her live in New York um, a few months ago and... Where do I start? (laughs) The whole show was a... TED Talk and self-empowerment, basically. It was like the most fun TED Talk and (laughs) self-empowerment. She had like probably eight backup dancers that had all different bodies that were amazing twerkers. She was wearing like an extremely revealing leotard. She was giving us lines to repeat back to her. Like, you are beautiful. You are brave. You are amazing. You are brilliant. She was like, go home and repeat this in the mirror to yourself when you get home. Like, everybody was screaming it. (laughs) All ages were like, you know, we're like 100% in it. We all were having a religious experience. It was the coolest thing I've ever been to. (laughs) How did you feel afterwards? I mean, I felt renewed. (laughs) Like, honestly, I just... I felt like Lizzo was the real deal. Mm. There has been a lot of changing language in our beauty industry and around beauty standards um, that it's hard to know whether they're real or not. Like women's magazines don't talk about being skinny anymore or 10 ways to lose 10 pounds. They talk about being strong and being healthy. so true. You know? Um, Mm. And yet, is that really true? Is that code language, but actually everybody still wants to be skinny? Like, it's hard to know whether these are all just euphemisms for the same thing um, or whether things are really changing. I don't know. And then you see Lizzo and you realize that, like, things are. And what a relief. Yeah, and that she's a model for what that can be. And I'm thinking also of Billie Eilish, the other sort of massive pop star of 2019. Yeah. With her, like, baggy, anti-silhouette look, you know, it's so, it couldn't be more different from Britney Spears. But it's not, like, just Billie Eilish's aesthetic. It's her whole demeanor, the way that she is in interviews, Mm. the way that she seems kind of transparent and quite radically honest. She talks about not enjoying being famous, not enjoying being a pop star. She's not interested in being sexy. You get the sense from her that, like, were she to come close to having a kind of Britney Spears-level meltdown, she would just get out of the business before that happened. (laughs) Yeah. She wouldn't do it because it's not worth it. I mean, she's, like, the perfect example of a person who's not trying to fit into the machine or scared by the machine. I'm thinking of in the beginning of... um, one of her music videos where she just takes out her Invisalign retainer, which she wears all the time, and just drops it in the hand of a person standing next to her. <laughs> so good. And there's something so teenagery about that. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the more we talk, Grizz, the more I feel like it's kind of nice to be a teenager in 2019. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that we didn't have Instagram when we were teenagers. <laughs> That's true. But, you know, it would have been nice to have Lizzo. It would have been nice to have Billie Eilish. I would take that. Yeah. Our final theme is race and representation. 
something I've noticed in my job as a commissioning editor is that identity and specifically racial identity has been one of the biggest subjects, probably the biggest, I think, this year. And what I mean by that is specifically art that's by and about people of colour. And I realise I'm saying this as a white woman and I'm not posing as an authority, but I, I have been struck in my job by just how many of the really massive major highlights of this year have had artists of colour behind them. Yeah. I'm thinking about Black Lives Matter and the past, you know, five or ten years and the way that this kind of momentum has been building. And I guess the white gatekeepers and the white consumers of culture really having to reconsider things like our unconscious bias and structural racism and how they shape culture. And there's something sort of exciting about something that has taken hundreds of years of struggle and protest, like kind of watching it accelerate. Yeah, I think so. Looking at it from the eye of a commissioning editor as I'm doing is that there's been a kind of breakthrough point in terms specifically of kind of cultural representation and recognition. And what I don't want to do is pat the culture on the back, you know, clearly we have a long way to go. Yeah, there have been some big moments though. I'm curious what what moments you're thinking of. The first one I think is Stormzy headlining Glastonbury. Um, Amazingly, he was the first ever solo black headliner. Wow. Which is I know, it's kind of strange to think that, but he was. And he really used that opportunity. He wasn't just going to play a set. He was going to really say something. And he highlighted inequality, basically, spanning across, you know, the criminal justice system into the arts. Um, He gave up different parts of his set to different people. And Ballet Black, the dance company, performed there. And there was a story that was told about how they've only quite recently had ballet shoes to match their skin tone. And it was a very, Mm. like, specific, subtle example of how racism works. One of the other really big things I'm thinking of, which is, again, kind of UK-centric, is Kara Walker, um, the African-American artist. She did the Turbine Hall Commission at Tate Modern this year, which is the big, open, kind of cavernous space of Tate Modern. It spans about, like, three or four levels. And there's a free installation that happens there every year. So it's kind of an honour to be asked to do it, and it always gets a lot of buzz. And she created this work, which is basically like a huge working fountain. It's called Fons Americanus. Mm. Um, And it looks like any kind of fountain that you see in like a town square, particularly in Europe, I think. But if you look closer at it, it's got these details like people who seem to be drowning in water or a noose hanging from a tree. And it's basically about the history of slavery and colonialism. And basically, having seen that, I've kind of not been able to look at any of these like public sculptures in the same way again. Wow. It's so clever and it kind of really gets under your skin. And it got me thinking about the ways in which Britain is kind of only just beginning to think about our colonial history and things like decolonizing the canon and decolonizing the curriculum have become like phrases and things that people talk about now. And I think even two years ago that the idea of kind of decolonizing wasn't in the mainstream. Yeah. You know, you talking about that reminds me of the 1619 project, which was this huge multi-platform project from the New York Times Mm. and um, this reporter, Nicole Hannah-Jones. And it was uh, kind of on the four. This year was the 400th anniversary of the beginning of American slavery. And in the podcast, it really teaches you about the history of slavery in a way Mm. that I had never understood it before and a way that I definitely was never taught it in school. Um, And one part that stood out to me is that the majority of the credit powering the American slave economy came from the London money market, that actually Mm. many years after Britain abolished the slave trade, it was bankrolling slavery in the U.S. Wow. And so it made me think like this is really a shared history and we all have to reckon with it. It has huge reverberations today. 
I just would really recommend the podcast. I they also created a curriculum for um, for classrooms that actually like helps teach slavery in a different way. I really want to listen to that. It's so good. So the third thing uh, that I wanted to flag up was a play that's been getting a lot of buzz right now. Um, it's called Fairview, and it was on in New York uh, recently. It won the mm. Pulitzer Prize for Drama this year. Um, I saw it at the Young Vic in London, and it's by an African-American playwright called Jackie Sibley's Drury. It's basically really hard to talk about without giving spoilers, so <laughs> I'm going to say very little, except that it's set in the house of a sort of wealthy black American family, very comfortable, middle-class um, kind of family set up. They're getting ready for a dinner party. And after the first kind of scene, she basically completely pulls the rug. I'm not going to say how. And it becomes a lot about white conceptions of blackness and what black life looks like when you're looking at it through white eyes. Mm. It's like a totally fascinating play. And it's weird because I've never qu had quite so many people saying to me, like, have you seen it? What did you think? How can I get a ticket? <laughs> um, I can answer the last thing, which is that tickets, more tickets have just been released. Um, and it's on till the end of January. And it's one of the most uh, original things I've seen this year in the theatre. Great. I guess I'll just have to wait for it to come back to New York. Um, my fourth thing, George the Poet, um, he swept the board at the British Podcast Awards this year. We love him. Um, we he's love him. He's a friend him. of the podcast. He's a friend of the podcast. Um, so all I'm going to say about him is that if you haven't listened to his podcast, it's called Have You Heard George's Podcast?, um, you should. It's about race, class, poverty, school, prison, how these things intersect, specifically for the community that he belongs to, the working class black British community. Um, and it's very kind of experimental sonically. It's really doing something different with the form. He also was on the podcast a few months ago speaking with you, Grizz. And uh, I still think about it all the time. It's like the most thoughtful, open, beautiful, painful <laughs> interview I've, I've heard in a very long time. And so, and so, yeah, the final thing that I've noticed in commissioning stories around culture and thinking about race particularly is obviously Bernadine Evaristo. She is an author who won the Booker Prize this year. She's the first black woman ever to win it. And she won for this amazing novel called Girl, Woman, Other. You know, I've been wanting to read the novel. What is it like? Mm. Well, it's long and it's quite expansive. It's told from the point of view of lots of different women um, in kind of different times in history and whose lives kind of intersect with the racial prejudice and the racial situation in Britain at that time mm. in different ways. And so, yeah, it's all, it kind of brings together all these different voices. I felt reading it like it was quite open and quite generous. That's made up of these, they're almost like short paragraphs, sometimes reading like a list of kind of short lines that aren't really sentences because none of them end in full stops. <laughs> That's a period to an American listener. Yes. So there are no periods through the whole book? I mean, yeah, pretty much. I think I'm right in saying that. This ties into a broader point that I want to make, which is actually not so much about um, race and representation, but about experimental fiction and how I think that Bernadine Evaristo is part of a kind of wave that we've seen this year of writers that are doing really different things with language and with full stops or periods, for example. I mean, one of the books that was also shortlisted for the Booker Prize um, is a book called Duck's Newburyport by Lucy Elman. And that's composed of one sentence. It has no punctuation whatsoever. Oh, my God. But I haven't read it, actually, so I can't comment on it. But reading Girl, Woman, Other, um, Benedine Evaristo's book, also reminded me of one of the other books that I really loved from this year by an author called Ocean Vuong, 
which is On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. Mm. He's a poet, and it's again not structured in a normal novelistic way. It's got a logic to it, which is almost more about language than it is about plot. The chapters are all broken up into sections, and one bit might end on a word, and then that word is kind of picked up for the next bit, and suddenly we've moved from America to Vietnam, where his mother grew up, and it's kind of about her PTSD from the Vietnam War. And it's really like associative and interesting in that way. And I feel like there's this, there's a market now for books that are not traditional and yet, you know, they're nominated for quite mainstream prizes and things. Yeah. It reminds me also of the book Lanny by Max Porter. Yeah. Which you and I both read and loved. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how to describe that book other than it's about a curious little boy and a mother who loves him. And there, there are moments in which the words like turn around on the page and go upside down and intersect each other. And it's sort of like overhearing sort of the British countryside and like what people say to each other within the comfort of their homes. And it's just I've never seen words everywhere like that. Like I've never yeah. seen anyone play with actually the structure of where things are like vertically and horizontally on the page. It was so cool. Yeah, and it makes you think of all these like snippets of conversation that kind of overheard in the village. Yeah, it, it feels exactly when you're reading it what it's like to overhear different people in a train talking to each other or something. Yeah, and it's really exciting to me that there's a space for all of these kind of books to come out and that they're not sort of in a kind of ghetto of experimental fiction. They're like there on the table in a normal bookshop when you walk in. Right. It's interesting because the other thing I think you notice when you walk into bookshops which goes back to this theme of race, is the sort of broader movement to diversify book publishing. So there was this book called Queenie by Candice Carty-Williams here, which was, I mean, it was kind of billed as like a Bridget Jones. It's not like that at all. But it's kind of like commercial fiction aimed at women, um, very like readable and funny and sad in a way, a story of a woman sort of coming of age in London, basically. And then on the kind of nonfiction end, a book that I really loved this year was by Emma Dabiri, um, who's an academic, and it's called Don't Touch My Hair. And she's mixed race and Irish. Yeah, I'm in the middle of that now. It's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's, like, ama- it's amazing. I felt like I learned so much reading that book. I mean, it's basically about the politics of black hair. It's like a sociological study slash personal history. It takes you from Nigeria to London to Dublin to the States. It's had some fascinating points to make. I mean... Something that I really took away from it was this point about time and about um, when white people colonized Africa, they were also colonizing those people's time. Mm. So the time that it takes to braid hair, for example, is a lot of time. And that's so important in so many different African cultures. And yet when you impose clock time on a culture, you kind of remove you remove autonomy, you remove like that kind of flexibility of time. So it's a kind of form of colonization that I hadn't thought of before. And it really ties into like how we think about hair and beauty and, you know, personal care. Yeah. As we talk about this, it would be sort of remiss for us not to mention that Bernadine Evaristo, when she won the Booker Prize, she actually had to share it with Margaret Atwood, who is an incredible writer in her own in her own right, of course, um, maybe didn't didn't need it. <laughs> no. No, Margaret Atwood does not need to win the Booker Prize. Margaret Atwood has a lot of prizes at her house, I'm (laughs) sure. It it reminded me slightly of the mix-up at the Oscars with Moonlight and La La Land. And sort of, here is a very important moment and symbolic moment, uh, and it has to be shared. 
and why? Yeah, and, and why is the question. And that introduced a slight sour note. And yet, I think it's great that she won. And, and the book that wins the Booker Prize does really well. A lot of people read it. And a lot of people will be discovering Bernadine Evaristo for the first time through this. It made me think, though, about the Turner Prize, which came a couple of months after the Booker Prize here. Um, and the Turner Prize is the, you know, the biggest prize in contemporary art in the UK. Mm. Um, even though it's kind of very controversial and, you know, there's a lot of like call that art kind of discourse around it. But in terms of like the, the winning of the prize itself, the interesting thing was that this year, the four nominees insisted on sharing the prize. They said, don't give it to any of us. Wow. Maybe people are just exhausted by competition. Like it's another year of Brexit and Trump and the climate crisis is growing. And Lila, we got through so much of the episode <laughs> without mentioning Brexit and Trump. That's true. <laughs> but here we are at the end of the episode saying we're all tired. We don't even need to compete anymore. There's too much to get done. Let's just go on into 2020 and do it. And everyone's a winner. And everyone's a winner. Okay, you've heard enough from us. So over the past week, we have done another thing, which is pulled some of our colleagues away from their desks, both in London and in New York, pulled them into the studio and um, asked them about their cultural highlights for 2019. Up first, here's Alec Russell, the editor of FT Weekend in the London studio. I have no doubt in my mind what is my standout cultural moment. Uh, It was spending two or three hours in late November with one of the great writers of recent decades. This is Edna O'Brien. She's 89 and she's still writing as furiously and I would say brilliantly as ever. Uh, She first came to sort of public acclaim 60 years ago when she wrote this astonishing book about growing up in the sort of suffocating conservative world of rural Ireland. And she was just writing very frankly about the desires and dreams of young women at a time when, for many in Ireland, it was quite shocking. She's just written possibly her most searing book yet, um, certainly most sort of unflinching and uncompromising. It's it's based on the story of those uh, kidnapped schoolgirls in Nigeria who were uh, taken hostage by Boko Haram, the Islamist movement in northern Nigeria, and had the most awful experience. There was gang rape. Some of them were killed. And uh, Edna O'Brien has written this very slim, very taut novel And she went out there, Edna, at the age of sort of 85, 86, and spent several months stomping around Nigeria to try and gain their experiences or understand their experiences. She's just the most remarkable person to spend time with. And in fact, right at the end of our interview, I've never ended an interview like this. She said, I I think think we should end with a glass of champagne, don't you? And so we went downstairs uh, to have a glass of champagne. She actually was asking me all sorts of questions. and, and And I found sort of gave me some quite helpful advice, actually. Uh, it was unsurprisingly about writing. So what she says is this. She says, you have to write with the passion of a poet and the clear eye of a mortician. And I've been thinking about that ever since. And here's Joe Ellison. She was previously the FT's fashion editor and is now the editor of our luxury supplement, How to Spend It. I suppose the biggest cultural moment of the year in terms of fashion, which is where I work, um, was the death of Karl Lagerfeld, which is, it was phenomenal and I suppose significant in the sense that he he was a man who had worked for sort of 50 years in an industry, but not only 
kind of encapsulated that industry in terms of his power, but he also straddled so many of the big major cities. He had his own brand. He was head of Chanel. So he was kind of literally this colossus. He was first and foremost, I think, this kind of marketing genius. He kind of created what Chanel was. I mean, he took a kind of moribund a moribund business that hadn't really been doing very well for a long time after Coco Chanel's death and then transformed it into this business where, you know, the interlocking sea, the kind of quilted bag, the, the Chanel jacket, all of these things which have now since become sort of totems of a brand that we immediately associate whenever we think of Chanel. They were all Carl's reinvention. They were all part of a narrative that he created. And I think in terms of like where fashion has gone since, he's set a template that everyone else has tried to emulate ever since. His death, I think, really marks a kind of moment for for our business anyway, in terms of what happens next. And I feel was very much, you know, the end of an era. I also asked Joe to explain the giant hairband phenomenon that's been perplexing Lila. Thank you, Grizz. The last thing I read about this was from The Cut, and it was a list of 15 padded headbands ordered by girth. (laughs) Okay, so the big hairband trend of 2019, of course, actually began in 2018 um, at the Autumn Winter Prada show, and it was a huge satin band. It might not have even been at the show. It might have been at one of the resort collections, but it started at Prada. Mrs. Prada, Mutual Prada, is very good at giving you that one defining accessory that then sort of lands on the high street and then everyone else kind of copies. And and that's kind of, it's a perfect example of a kind of how a trend percolates. Like, you know, we think we've moved on and we think it's all about Instagram and everything's changed, but actually it still just takes one great designer to identify one single piece and for everyone else to copy it. And that was kind of, yeah, that was a trend in action. Okay, from the New York office, here is our media correspondent and friend of the podcast, Anna Nicolau. She's got her cultural picks of 2019 and her predictions for 2020's award season. This has actually been a very good year for movies, mainly because we're in this bizarre financial moment where everyone's like now spending big again. We've talked a bit here, and I've obviously talked about it a lot in my job this year about like this ridiculous streaming explosion and everyone putting a ton of money into content. There's been so many good movies coming out and coming out on Netflix, for example. I wouldn't say rom-com, but rom-drama would be Marriage Story. We'll be interviewing Noah Baumbach oh, cool. in season two. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So it's just like this like really, really good film starring Adam Driver and he's excellent in it. I mean, it's very like sad and dramatic, I mean, it probably would have found a home somewhere, but it might not have had like the funding or the like just kind of independence to do kind of whatever they wanted to with it, which I think is what the glass half full vision of all this is that with all these new streaming companies, you can like really just like get any project made that that you want to. In terms of the Oscars, it's going to be the same thing as last year, kind of where like Netflix desperately tries to get (laughs) Best Picture. A lot of critics, I'm not a critic, but I will just add myself to that group right now. would like to see Parasite win. It's basically about, like, class structure in Korea, and it's sort of a comedy, but it's very dark humor, and it can be very nerve-wracking. Like, it's like almost like a thriller comedy. It's, it's basically at the top of almost every, like, best films of 2019 list. And finally, here is our audience engagement intern, who's a member of my team and my personal, unofficial Gen Z translator, Melissa Ingabide. I'd say 2019 is the year that the definition of country music began to change. 
Spotify does this really cool thing at the end of every year. They do these curated playlists of songs that you've listened to frequently throughout the year. And when I looked at my playlist, there was quite a bit of country, (laughs) which is very shocking. The gateway to country music for me has to be Casey Musgraves. She released her album, Golden Hour, early 2018, and it then went on to win Album of the Year at the the Grammys in early 2019. And I remember watching the ceremony and being like, who is this woman? I've never heard of her before, but she won Album of the Year. And I think that was a lot of people's reactions. Her lyrics are very unexpected for country music. She's talking about feminism. She's talking about gay rights. She's talking about recreational drug use, things that just haven't really been touched um, in the genre. Her lyrics alone just reach more people. I think traditionally country music has been for a very specific group of people. Lil Nas X, like no one knew him a year ago and now he's like the biggest star, like arguably in the world. Him, along with Casey Musgraves, they're kind of bringing country music into the front stage and I think a wider audience is now like, huh, actually, maybe I like country music. He's a rapper. Um, His song, um, Old Town Road, came out, I think, at the very beginning of 2019. Part of what makes him interesting is he's kind of blurs the lines of genres. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached, head is mad at black, got the bushes black to match, riding on a horse, the controversy around that was that it was released on the country um, billboard charts. And then um, as it kind of like grew traction over the year and in popularity, they took it down. I think they released a statement saying that it just doesn't follow the guidelines of country music. And that kind of really created a huge dialogue, especially on social media, about like how do you determine what genre a song is, especially because music is so borrowed, especially now people are constantly mixing genres. And a lot of people were thinking that it was possibly uh, racially motivated just because Lil Nas X is a gay black man. It really shined a light on just the country industry. It's a very exclusive club. And I think the audience was like, no, like, like our money is what's fueling this. And they started to realize we can control the narrative if we vote with our with our dollars, basically. Now, towards the end of the year, like he was invited to the Country Music Award. He got an award. An artist like him getting a CMA. That's a really big deal. Who's a country artist? What is a country song? Who is a country fan? All those things changed in 2019. So that was the FT's staffers. Now, finally, we're going to share a few of our favorite recommendations from our listeners. There were tons and we couldn't fit them all in. Uh, but take out a pen and paper or your notes app if you're a digital <laughs> adult and uh, give this a listen. Anna Simons recommends Giri Haji a series that the BBC co-produced with Netflix. It's a murder thriller set in Tokyo and London that she calls original, witty, lyrical, dramatic, culturally sensitive, and full of light and shade. She also loved seeing male Japanese leads in a Western show. Geraldine Brody recommended the work of the playwright Alice Birch after she saw her play Blank at the Donmar Warehouse in London. Geraldine reckons that Alice is one of the most exciting writers around today in theatre and cinema. I saw it too, and it's one of the best things that I saw in 2019. It's about different women who were caught up in different ways with the criminal justice system, and it does some really clever things with structure. Alice is adapting Sally Rooney's book, Normal People, for the BBC next year, so look out for that. 
Camilla Bella wrote us an incredible list of recommendations. She says it's time people in the West started reading more from contemporary China rather than, as she says, just seeing it as a homogenized place that we can't understand. She suggests the novel Lotus by Li Jia Zhang, who writes all her books in English to avoid censorship. Dragana Laki recommends Fleischman is in trouble. We actually interviewed the author Taffy Brodesser Ackner a few months ago, and it was a fascinating conversation if you want to go back and listen. The book is about a couple who separates with young children, and Dragana says, quote, I don't recommend it to everyone because it takes some minimum age, life experience, and human insight to fully appreciate it. Otherwise, it's wasted. Honestly, I tend to agree with her. People who have kids seem to really enjoy this book a lot more. One of our listeners, Mary Burnham, said she was profoundly affected by the novel The Overstory by Richard Powers, which won this year's Pulitzer Prize for fiction. It's about a group of strangers brought together by climate catastrophe. She said it was almost unreadable during the weeks of the news that the Amazon was being burnt at an unprecedented rate. The book was also actually recommended by one of our most popular columnists at the FT, Polita Clark. She had it as her favorite book of the year. And finally, last but definitely not least, Roberto Flores from Rotterdam told us on Twitter that he is obsessed with the Baby Yoda meme. If you don't know what that is, Google it. It's extremely cute. You'll get it. That's it for this year. We want to take a moment to say a big thank you to all of you. Yeah, it's been a real honor and a pleasure to build this community with you all over the course of the year. We'll be back with our second season at the end of January. Until then, please continue the conversation with us on Twitter and tell us who you want to hear from on the show in 2020. You can find the podcast at FT Culture Call or you can email the show at culturecall at ft.com. If you like what you hear, as always, please do share this with your family and friends. Uh, you can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which is one of the main ways that new listeners discover our show. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Mari Brown. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood with research assistance this week from the great Melissa Ingabide, Maddie Pollard, and Dahlia Dawood. And our music is composed by Fatim. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.